Father, uh, we come before you and ask you uh, to come into our midst, to make your presence so clearly known here that we would see you in an accurate way, that you would cause us to reflect on our hearts, and that you would change the way we interact with one another because of the way you've interacted with us. God, I pray that people would leave here today secure in their relationship with you, and those who don't have one would be very clear about that as well. And I pray that everyone who hears these words would have an opportunity to trust your son, Jesus Christ, as Savior, and that today might be the day of salvation for some of them. For those of us who know you, that you'd move us to the next level in our Christian journey, that anybody who's in a dry spot, that you'd take them out, that opening the word today would be like a drink of water, refreshment in the desert. And I pray for any that just need a word of encouragement, that you do that today. And for any that have hurts or pains, that you would just allow your blood, your, your love, your word to wash over those wounds. And I thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word. I pray that as I speak your truth, that it be your very words that go through my lips. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Shannon and I were talking a little bit this week about our kids as parents, and we were just going through some situations that they were in, and we were talking specifically, there are times when our kids are expected to be still, and they have a disease called the wiggles, you know, they kind of wiggle a lot as little kids, they're six years old, five years old are the ones that we were talking about, and all of a sudden, God just gave me perspective while we were in this conversation, because we're having this conversation like, what's wrong with us as parents, why can't we get our kids to sit still, what's happening here, and then I just said to Shannon, I said, when you were five, did you sit still? And she paused and actually had to think about it. I don't have to think about that. And she knows some of my stories. And I said to her, do you remember when I was in first grade, a teacher tied me to my chair? And she started laughing. You know, you go to jail for doing something like that now. But when I was a kid, that's what they did. They keep me in my seat. They tie me to my chair. And then it caused me to start thinking about different punishments I received when I was a kid. Because as a kid, just so that you know, so I'm being candid, I was um, what I would like to refer to as an energetic child. <laughs> Problem child. Or something. But anyway, the, what I ended up doing is I got in a lot of trouble growing up. And that day that I got tied to my chair, I realized what that punishment was. It was a punishment of isolation. Because a teacher tied me to my chair, and then you know, all the other kids got to go outside for my favorite subject, recess, and I had to sit in this room all by myself. And, and the, they actually turned the lights off, and they made it like as bad as they could. There were other times where I'd get in trouble in class, but class was still going on, and they'd send me out in the hall. Who else is out in the hall? No one. And that was the point, to put me in a place of isolation. And I started thinking about it. Even my parents were onto this. Because my parents were sending me to my room, and they'd say, you go to your room and think about what you've done. <laughs> Which now as a parent, I realize is code for, we don't know what to do with you, so just go away for a little bit. <laughs> but they'd send me there. You know who else is in my room? Nobody. It was isolation. In fact, I remember one time in junior high, I actually got a punishment that was called in-school suspension where you, you went to school at the same time as everybody else, you left the same time as everybody else, but what they did when you got to school is they took you to this room that didn't have any windows, and they sat you down in this cubicle, and you just had to do your work all day, and you weren't allowed to interact with anybody else. In the, they call it employment now. They call it punishment then. But you, you just do your work all day, sitting right there in, in this cubicle, and the, and the point was isolation. It removed you from going to the cafeteria, the change of the classes, the interacting with other people. See, isolation is a punishment. In fact... In our prison system, it's one of the worst punishments that they have. They call it solitary confinement. And that is so bad that some people are actually against it. They argue against it on behalf of the prisoners because they call it psychological torture. Because people who are in isolation are found to be more likely to be depressed and other mental illnesses that they become susceptible to. But you know what the really sad thing is? Is that many of us live our lives in isolation. We just have a bunch of noise around us and things that resemble relationships that disguise it from being reality. Some scientists, social scientists at Duke, did a, a study about this, and they found that one in four Americans, one in four, that's 25% of the population, have no, absolutely no, meaningful relationships. That over 50% of Americans have 
No meaningful relationships. No one that they can confide in. No one that they can tell their secrets to. No one that they can confess sin to. No one they can talk about the real stuff with outside of their immediate family. Over 50% of Americans. That means they're not connected to any culture outside of their home. That's your parent. Immediate family means your parents, uh, your kids, your, pa- your spouse. It's the people you live with in a house. Outside of those people, they've got no connection with their neighborhood. They've got no connection with the place they work. They've got no connection at their church. They have no meaningful relationships. And so why is this? We know it's not good. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 that God saw the animals alone. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for anybody to be alone. And even if you're a secular social scientist, you know this is true. Well, one article I read was commenting on, on these stats. And they said this. I'll give it to you word for word. Perhaps the same thing that is sabotaging marriage is undermining friendship. And then they go on to say what it is. Our increasing unwillingness to commit to relationships that require sacrifice, mutual accountability, and a generous share of humility. And they go on, and they talk about what they think the reason is. Refusal is often not so much willful as it is fearful. Refusal is not often so much willful. It's not that we don't want real relationships. And by real relationships, I mean relationships that are of mutual accountability, that require humility, that are meaningful because they're vulnerable. It's not that we don't want those, it's that we're afraid to have those kinds of relationships. And that's bad, and it's scary, but you know what? It gets worse if you're a Christian, because it is impossible, impossible, you get that? If you're not paying attention, impossible to be an obedient Christian and live a life in isolation. It's impossible to be an obedient Christian and not have relationships that are sacrificial towards one another, that are mutually accountable, that are meaningful in their vulnerability level, it's not possible because you go through the New Testament and you see one another after one another commanded, not suggested, commanded throughout the scripture. In fact, we've got a slide. I'll pop up a few of them. Think about what some of these words say that are up on the screen. And as you're reading them, I know that you won't be able to get all of them. Liking someone's status on Facebook is not one of these. It's not one of the one another's in scripture, sorry. And you can pull that back down, Chris. Thank you so much for popping that up. Hopefully you process that, put all that in your notes, and you've got those things. But think about the few that you saw. You probably glanced at a couple. And you think about the relationships we oftentimes have, just even here at Sunday morning as we come to church, and hi, and friends, we know each other's name, and all that kind of stuff, and we mistake that for real relationships. Those are acquaintances. Now, you might have real relationships with some of those people, but you can't with all of them. Because a real relationship is somebody that you can do those things with. Confess sin, <laughs> Try confessing sin to an acquaintance and see how that goes. Uh, what just happened? This was weird. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate you being here today. Uh, warmed and filled. I'm out. Uh, you just think about some of those things. Carrying one another's burdens. Praying for one another, not just to shut down a conversation. I'll pray for you. But to really carry one another's burdens and praying with and for one another. You see, those things, they don't happen in, in acquaintances. They happen in real relationships. And that's why we value embrace. Embracing the one another's of Scripture because we think they're so vitally important. You see them all over the New Testament. And that's why we value embracing one another. And so today we're going to talk about real relationships. And you just need to think about, do you have these? Do you have real relationships? If you have your Bible, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 13, I'll start reading in verse 1 in the Gospel of John. And here what we see in John chapter 13 are some of the most intimate relationships in all of Scripture. There are 13 men here that have spent three years together, laughing together and crying together and and eating meals together and and sleeping outside under the stars together and doing all kinds of different stuff, being persecuted and rejected and experiencing ministry victories and all kinds of amazing things together. And they've got a bond with one another. And Jesus is their leader. 
And now they're at a point where the gospel transitions. There's no more miracles. There's no more public stuff. There's not going to be the feedings of the 5,000. There's not going to be all these big miraculous healings. All that stuff is done. Now it's just some intimate time in this last supper. In this last meal where Jesus knows that within 15 hours he'll be hanging on a cross, dying a gruesome death, and now he's spending this time with his closest friends, even one of them that will betray him. And look at what it says in John chapter 13 and verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God as returning to God. Verse 4. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, because there's more to it than just washing the feet. You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. He's so emphatic. Literally, it's that, not for, not, no, not forever will you ever wash my feet, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, unless I, and that's key, not just unless your feet get washed. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but in typical Peter fashion, my hands and my head as well, do the whole thing, he's an extremist. And Jesus answered, a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet, his whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. He shows he is so in control of what's happening here. And he knows what's going on. And he knows Judas is there. And he knows Judas is going to betray him. And he still washes Judas' feet. He says, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. So here we have this setting with these 13 men gathered around a meal. That's a special feast that they prepared for. They prepared the food for. They prepared their bodies for. They've gone to a bathhouse. They've gotten clean for. They show up at this place. And Jesus knows. He knows that within 15 hours he's going to die. He knows that one of these guys is going to betray him. But it says in verse 1, and notice that he showed them the full extent of his love. He wanted to show it, and some of your translations will say, to the nth degree, to the end, he loved them to the end. The uttermost love. Because real relationships require unlimited love. And that's what Jesus shows us in this passage, that real relationships, and if you're going to have real relationships, this is going to be required that you experience this from Jesus and that you demonstrate it to others, that real relationships require unlimited love. Now, let me tell you why that's such a difficult concept for us. I can say the word unlimited to you, and you can probably come up with a definition. You probably write a definition out that would say, uh, without limits, or something along those lines for unlimited. But we don't really fathom what that is because we live in worlds that are so limited. We're limited in every capacity. We're limited by time, how much time you have in a day. If you play sports, there's a shot clock or a game clock. You've got time limits on those things. If you drive your car, there are speed limits. Even when we come into situations where it seems like there's no limits, they're still limited. Even if you go to like an all-you-can-eat buffet, Seems like that would be an unlimited amount, right? But that's a limited situation. I saw a guy a couple months ago that went to an all-you-can-eat fish fry up in Wisconsin. Guy was 6'6", 350, so his limit's a little different than my limit. But he went there thinking it was all-you-can-eat because the sign said all-you-can-eat. They cut him off after 20 pieces of fish. <laughs> I don't know what kind of fish it was. It must have been good. But he had 20 pieces of fried fish brought to him, and the waitress came out and said, Hey, mister, you're cut off. You've had a little too much, sir. We're calling you a taxi. I don't know what they did at that moment, but they cut him off. He got so mad, he called the police. Because he thought he was in a situation with no limits. But then they put a limit on him. I have no idea how that 911 call went. 
Can you? Is there a problem, sir? Yes, they won't give me more fish. Is anyone in danger? They won't give me more fish. Are you five? Like, how did that conversation go? Like, throwing a tantrum here. I, what, do you want us to send somebody to pay tax dollars for you to get, like, two more pieces of What are you doing? But this guy thought there was no limit. There was a limit. And listen, even if they hadn't cut him off, there would have been a limit. The limit would have been his capacity. Everything in our life is limited in some regard. Now, here's why this is dangerous, because it seeps into our relationships. And we limit our relationships because we're used to living in the limited world by time, by space, by our physical limitations, by everything about us that's so limited. But then in relationships, we're supposed to be unlimited, which requires faith. And says, so why do you think that when Peter goes to Jesus, he says, should I, how many times should I forgive? Seven? And he thought he was doing like an awesome job. And Jesus says to him, no, you're 70 times seven. How about that? You try that number, because you'll never get to that number, Peter. It's an unlimited amount of forgiveness I want you to have. In fact, he then commands later, you forgive just as you've been forgiven. That's how you're to do that. That's how you're to live in these relationships. But then you look at our relationships, and even just our casual friendships, how many of them are limited? How many of you have tried to have a relationship with somebody before, and you pursued them, because that's part of friendship, you pursued them, and then you just didn't get a response, so you quit? How many times did you call? How many times did you invite? How many times did you? That's your limit. Whatever it was, and it could be a lot, but that's your limit. We all have limits. You can hear people sometimes, and hopefully none of you, but you hear people sometimes in their marriage relationships, they'll say, as long as they, whatever, then I will be with them, stay with them, love them, whatever you fill in the phrase with. But you fill in the blank with, that's your limit. As long as they, and then maybe they fulfill some positive things, then I will stay in this relationship. As long as they don't, like some negative thing, if they, if they ever did this, then I'd be, that's your limit. You know your limits. We all have them in our relationships. We're limited. We're limited in the time that we'll give. We're limited in the amount that we'll listen. We're limited in the amount we'll forgive. We're limited in the amount that we'll love. We're limited in all these different areas. But you see, God's love is unlimited. It's not selfish. It's not boastful. It's not proud. It is kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. It's an unlimited love. It's the kind of love that Paul prayed that the Ephesian believers would experience. And he says, I pray that you, talking about all the saints, I pray that you, being rooted and grounded, rooted and established in love, would have power together with all the other believers in Ephesus, that you all would understand this. This isn't just for a select group. That you all would have power together to understand God's love. The height, the depth, the length, the width, the whole thing. Because it's an unlimited love. It's a love that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know that whole thing. And you know what? Jesus wanted his guys to know that too. And he wants you to know it. And that's why in verse 1 he shows it to the full extent. Look at verse 1. He shows them this love to the full extent. He loved them to the uttermost now. Did you notice the verse says that? Now he shows them this? And that really struck me when I, when I was looking at this passage for this message we talk about embracing the one another's of scripture and embracing one another. Because I thought to myself, John 13, I mean, foot washing is great. Okay, that's a, it's a great lesson on service and serving one another and humility. And there's lots of wonderful stuff in this passage of scripture. But the full extent of Christ's love? I thought, really? Like, the full extent of your love? I sure thought that was when you picked up a cross and carried it through a town where people spit on you and swore at you and mocked you and said stuff about you that wasn't true and then went to this place called Golgotha and then hung above the earth beneath heaven and took upon the full wrath of your father for all the sins of humanity, for every white lie you ever told, and for all the sins that were done in Holocaust. You took on all that upon yourself. I thought that was the full extent of your love. Foot washing, nice. But the full extent? Really? And do you know what? It's all the full extent of his love. It's his teaching. It's the teaching he'll do in John chapter 13 through chapter 17. It's the demonstration of things like this as he serves. 
Because he's demonstrating who he is and what he did on the cross in other tangible ways. And it's what he did on the cross. And you and I will never die on the cross for someone else. But we will have opportunities to demonstrate love like this to one another. But we can't do that until we've experienced it ourselves. So think about what it was like to experience it as these men. These 13 guys, they come together. And imagine from Jesus' perspective for just a moment what it was like. He knew, verse 1 tells us, he knew that his hour had come. He knew that he was going to die. And the hour's a big deal in the Gospel of John. Up until this point, it says things like, and his hour had not yet come, and it wasn't time yet. The hour wasn't here, and so that's why they weren't able to arrest him when he turns over the table. That's why they weren't able to do all this stuff. But now he knows that his time has come. And can you imagine being Jesus and actually for just a second knowing all that stuff? You know that you're going to die on a cross and it's going to be ugly. And you know that one of those guys in that room is going to betray you. Do you know what I would do? I would look at Judas right then and be like, you out. Like I've got 15 hours left and I want to be with my real friends. You're out of here. And then I'd look around at guys like Peter and I'd go, Peter, listen, I need you there. I need you at the cross. Knowing that they're going to flee. Knowing that they're going to take off, Right? And Andrew, I want you to make sure Peter's there. You brought Andrew. You brought him to me. Thank you so much for doing that. It's great. It's wonderful how we work together as a team. Here's what I need you to do. And John, you're the one that I love, and I want you to pray. Will you just pray? And will you just be there? And here's what I need from you, Thomas. And here's what I need from you, Levi. And I would be thinking about this team of guys and how they're. And I'm going to go through difficult stuff, and I need their help and my needs. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus isn't thinking about his needs. He knows everything that's going to happen. It's not because he's naive. But instead he looks around and he sees the needs of these men, even Judas. And what he sees is they've got dirty feet, which is a cultural faux pas. They're at a feast, a special meal. These men have gone to a bathhouse. Small homes in that day wouldn't have bathrooms in them. They would go to a public bathhouse and they would take a bath. And they'd put on their oils and the ointments and all those things. But you had to walk through the streets of Jerusalem. And if it was dry, there could be inches. Those of you who are from the north, if you see inches of snow, that's what it's like. Inches of dust on the road in Jerusalem. Uh, if it wasn't dry and it was wet, that means that there was mud, literal watery, liquidy dirt all over the ground that was all over their feet. And they'd come into this meal, and it was customary that there would be a slave that would wash people's feet. But this is kind of an undercover meal. There's no slave there. It's just these 13 guys. And they're all peers with one another. And then there's Jesus, the king of glory. And the way the customs went is the only person that could possibly wash feet was the lowest of the low. And it didn't just mean the lowest ranking person there, because disciples, they served rabbis. That was natural. A rabbi was a position of honor, and so the disciples would serve the rabbi. That was normal. But you wouldn't wash the rabbi's feet, because it was such a menial task. Even some slaves couldn't be required to do this. A Hebrew slave, you couldn't require a Hebrew slave to wash your feet if you were a Hebrew slave master. But the Gentile ones, you could. So it was only the lowest of the low that could do this. And here, can you imagine the king of glory gets up, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the transcendent one who created these feet and created that dirt. He gets up and he walks over. And can you imagine how humbling it would be to be one of those men and have Jesus get down to begin to wash your feet? And verse 4 says, So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing, which is an easy fact for us to read over, but that's a big deal. We know from the crucifixion accounts that Jesus didn't just wear a normal robe. He wore a rabbi's robe. It was a seamless robe. See, in that day, the majority of robes were actually a bunch of linen cloth woven together. It'd be a whole bunch of pieces. This was one large piece of cloth. It was very expensive. And we know that Jesus was poor. We know that he didn't have a place to lay his head. We know all those things. We also know from Luke chapter 8 that he had some very wealthy donors, some women that would give out of their funds so the ministry could go on. And so perhaps they gave him this gift. And perhaps it's why when he would go into different synagogues that they would automatically know that he was a rabbi because of the colored ribbons that would be tied on or the tassels that were there. This robe was a symbol of honor. It was a symbol of power. And Jesus takes it off and he lays it down. 
and he picks up a slave's garment, a towel, and he wraps it around his waist, and he comes over to these feet. Can you imagine how humbling that would be if you were Peter or John or James or any of these disciples? To have the king of kings. Like, you might be confused about who's better amongst you and your buddies, but everybody knows that Jesus is in a different stratosphere. Everybody realizes he's the one that's multiplying the bread. He's the one that's walking on water. He's the one that's healing diseases. He's the one that we left everything to follow. And now he's the one that's at my feet, about to wash my feet. Can you imagine how humbling that was for Jesus? Because he is the king of glory. He knows what it was like to make those feet. He knows what it was like to speak the universe into existence. And here he is humbling himself. Can you imagine how humbling it is to do something like that for someone that would be inferior to you? Could you imagine how humbling it would be to say that you were guilty of someone else's crime, knowing that you weren't, or to take someone else's cross or to die on a cross for someone's sins? That's what he's showing them here. And it's humbling to do, and it's humbling to receive. Have you ever had someone wash your feet? Maybe not literally, maybe metaphorically. Have you ever had someone serve you before? And when it starts to happen, you think, no, 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 why? What? No, I'll do that. I got this. It's the self-sufficiency in this. It's, we, we can't receive that even. It's we're afraid. We're afraid of the vulnerability. We're afraid of what happens there. We're afraid to be loved that way. But do you realize that every week we have people that wash our feet here at Southbridge? Do you realize there are people that serve? And, and the majority of them would not want me to tell you that they do it. I think there's one guy that I know that he wouldn't want me to tell you, so I didn't. I usually ask permission to share stories. I didn't ask permission to share this story. There's one guy at our church named Dale. He's in charge of our setup and teardown team. And uh, Dale, he comes every Sunday morning, and he sets stuff up. And he's got a team of people, but you know, there's some Sundays where nobody else shows up, and Dale has set this whole church up by himself. He's literally set up the rooms in the children's ministry. He set up the lobby, the signs out front, all that stuff. You know why? He's washing our feet. And I asked him, I said, why do you do this? And he's open with me sharing his story before he shared his story with our church. And he said, it's because God's changed my life. You see, Dale's story is an interesting story. Dale grew up in a situation where his dad was a pastor, but they had a very, view, a very skewed view of God. And they believed that every little thing that you did, that God was watching for like you to mess up, so then you would get sent to hell. And so you had to do everything just right. Can you imagine how paralyzing that is? And that's the world that he grew up in, and that's the view of God that he had. He got baptized even under that view, and then he walked away from God. And he got married, ended up getting a divorce. His divorce sent him in a downward spiral of just destructive behavior. He shared before with us as a church, prostitutes, alcoholism, you name it. He did it, and he thought he could never be forgiven for that stuff. And growing up, Dale always had a reading disorder. And God used that reading disorder to draw him to church because what he did is under self-discipline, he decided he just wanted to read like everybody else. And so he would go to Panera in the morning on Sunday mornings, and he'd read the newspaper. And one Sunday morning, he was in there reading the newspaper, and he saw a story about Southbridge. And so God began to plant a seed in his heart that he would come to church here. And, and eventually he came here and attended services and started to hear the Bible. So he started reading the Bible. As he started reading the Bible, God healed him of his reading disorder. And he got so excited about reading the scriptures that he, he read the whole Bible from front to back. He had never read a book before in his life. And he, just, he couldn't get enough of Jesus. And then one Sunday morning I said in a message that if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, he will turn your world upside down. And I explained what repentance is, that repentance is when you see something that you're doing wrong, you turn from it, and you turn to God. And Dale, he, he trusted Jesus Christ. He repented of his sins, and he turned to Jesus, and God turned his world upside down. And if you ask him today, he would tell you he's been forgiven of all that stuff he thought he could never be forgiven of. He, he's had changes happen in his life that he could never explain. And because God radically changed his life, he wants other people to experience that. And so I just asked him simply, why is it that you do what you do, Dale? And he said, because God changed my life. 
And because every time you share about somebody whose life has been changed, I know I had a part in that. Because he's been washing our feet. And Dale, I just want to share with you that last week we had a lady trust Jesus as her Savior. Thank you for washing our feet. Thank you for washing our feet. Thank you for what you do here and humbling yourself to serve us. Isn't that humbling? You know why Dale's able to do it? Because he's experienced that kind of love. You know what Jesus says later in John chapter 13? In John chapter 13 and verse 34, he says this. And so verses 1 through 17 have taken place where he's washed their feet. And then Judas leaves, and he's going to go out and do his betrayal deal. And then Jesus says this, a new command I give you, love one another. That's not new. You can find that in the book of Leviticus. It's new because of what he says next. As I have loved you, up until that point, they had never experienced love like that. Love one another, yeah. What we know of love, we demonstrate that to one another. And what most of us know of love is a limited love. But God has demonstrated the full extent of his love. (laughs) While he was the son of God, he didn't come here to be served. He came to this world to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for each one of us. He came to become sin so that we could become his righteousness. We sang in that song, he is our one defense. That's right. He's it. That's all we got. Jesus is the one defense. He is the reason why we can come before God in righteousness because we are his righteousness. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why he came, and that's the full extent of his love that we've experienced. And we experience it when other people love us with the Christ-like love. So the question is, have you experienced that love? Because what I'm going to challenge you with in the second part of this message is impossible for you if you have not. And so he says to them, you love as I have loved you. This is a new command. It's a new nature. It's not new by time because you've been told to love one another. It's new by nature because you've now experienced the love that I've demonstrated to you. Have you experienced that kind of love? Because many of us, what will stop us from ever having these kinds of relationships is the fact that we don't know this love ourselves. And maybe like Dale, you've got dirt in your life that needs to be dealt with. And you know what? Jesus still washes feet. He's still cleansing the dirt. He still washes that stuff away. And maybe you've got sin from your past that you think you could never be forgiven of and you need to experience that forgiveness today. And Jesus offers it for you today. If you confess your sins, he is faithful, he is just, and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He's still washing feet today. He will cleanse you of your sin. And some of you, you've got other stuff. You've got problems from the past that stop you from going into relationships because you don't want to be hurt. And you've been hurt in the past. So maybe something bad happened to you. Maybe somebody violated your trust. Maybe you were abandoned. Maybe all kinds of things that were terrible. You know what? He can wash you from your past. He can wash you from that stuff so you can press on and move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so you know him and you experience his love, not what's happened to you from other people. Because let me tell you something. If you love with unlimited love, I can promise you this. You will get hurt. Jesus did. And if it happened to him, it will happen to us. He was betrayed. He had false things thought about him, said about him, and done to him. And that's the way that he loved. You will experience that. But let me also promise you something else. You cannot afford, and I know it's a double negative, you cannot afford not to love like this. Because he wants you to know the full extent of his love. He wants you to know the height and the depth and the length and the width and this love that surpasses knowledge. And the only way you can know it is to experience it. And so you have to love with it. You experience it when you experience him, and then you love with this love. I love what Max Cato says about this passage. He says when Jesus got down on his knees to, to wash these feet, he wasn't just wiping away dust. He was wiping away doubt. So there'd be no doubt in these disciples' minds, because things are going to go bad in a little while, and they might have a lot of questions that come up, and some of you, you have questions about God, and you have questions of why things happen, you've got questions of different stuff. That's all going to happen for these guys, and he wants them to go back to, there's no doubt that you love me. You know what, he can still do that for you. But you've got to experience it, you've got to receive it, you've got to allow it. See, in this passage, Peter, he doesn't want to allow it, does he? And it's interesting with these guys in this passage, there's only one person out of these 13 guys that has the freedom to actually love like this, and it's Jesus. 
Why is that? Go back up to verse 3. Verse 3 is a crucial verse. Look at what it says about Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And so he knew who he was. He knew the position he had. He knew that he had come from God, and he knew he was returning to God. You see, many of us as believers in Jesus Christ, we've placed our faith in Jesus, and we know he's going to prepare a place for us, and we feel secure in our place. But do you feel secure in your position? Do you feel secure that he not only prepared a place for you, but he's prepared a position for you? See, Jesus talks about here that he knew not only the facts of what was going to happen with the betrayal, that his hour had come, but he knew his identity. He knew his position. He knew where he stood before God, and that nothing that he would do would change those things. And do you realize that when Jesus Christ did what he did for you on the cross, that he gave you not only a place in heaven, but he gave you a position in that family of God, that you are a royal priesthood, you're part of the kingly descent, that you're secure in his love, and there is nothing you can do to earn more of it, because you can't get more of it, because it's unlimited, and it's unconditional, and it's all for you. And there's nothing you can do to get less of it. No matter what sin you do, what failures you have, all that stuff, no matter what takes place, you don't, he doesn't love you any less. And no matter your successes and all that other stuff, he doesn't love you anymore. You're secure in a position and there's nothing that can separate you from his love. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 8. It's a wonderful passage of scripture. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, every extreme thing you can think of, neither present nor future nor any powers, there's nothing, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us, not just him because he's at this unique status. Us, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, you have a secure position. And until you understand this love and experience this love and realize what this love truly means for your relationship with God, there is nothing that you can do that will change. There's no service you can do for others. There's nothing that you can surrender yourself to them that puts you in a different spot. You don't have to prove to them how great you are in order for God to love you more, for you to experience this kind of love. None of that stuff changes any of that. And the reason why we do all that is because we're afraid. Perfect love casts out fear. What John doesn't tell us in this passage that Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22, you can look up on your own, these guys are arguing about who's the greatest at this moment. It's a popular conversation for them. You can imagine how it goes. Judas probably thinks he's the greatest because he gets to manage all the money. Jesus trusts him, right? It's not going real well, but he's got the money. He's the manager of the group. There might be Levi who thinks, well, I had the most money before this thing happened, so it cost me the most to follow Jesus. I left everything just like you guys did, but I had more. And so I'm the greatest, because Jesus said, if you leave houses and mom and all that stuff, he said the greatest reward. And so then Peter and James and John, they're probably going, but we're closer with Jesus than they were. And so Jesus, he, he must love us more, and so that we're the greatest, and Jesus must just shake his head. As the king of glory, secure in his position, then walks over, takes off the robe, puts on a towel, and humbles himself before them. And then Peter, he says, no, 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 you, you can't do this. This can't happen. No, never, verse 8. And then I love what Jesus says back to him. Unless I wash you. And you know what he battles here? One of the most popular lies in all of Christianity. The lie that you hear when you're in isolation. That you're now responsible to clean up your act. Now Christians hear this. Christians hear this because you've heard enough testimonies that go something like this. I was horrible, I did all this bad stuff, but now I'm good. And Jesus and I are perfect and we've got this awesome relationship. But in my past I was really bad. And so then what we then begin to subconsciously decide to do is that we have to clean up our act and then we can tell people about our junk. But the reality is that we're all living in junk. Jesus says, unless I wash you, it's not your responsibility to go clean yourself up. Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. But didn't we? And look at how we, and I quit smoking and I quit drinking and I did all this stuff before I came to church. Depart from me, I never knew you. I have to do the work. Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. I 
wash you. Now, a lot of non-believers, what they decide is that I'll go back to church once I, and I'll stop, and I'll trust Jesus before I die, and here's the, and it's all lies of isolation. Not that you don't have acquaintances, and not that there aren't relationships out there, but when you have no real relationships, where you talk about the crazy thoughts you have when you're all by yourself, you don't have any real relationships where you can confess sin to someone else, where you tell them why you really won't trust Jesus, either as your Savior or in your daily life, you don't have any of those relationships, then what happens is Satan's got you right where he wants you in that isolation spot where he can then, with that little voice, just kind of put those little seeds in there. And if you just, and God will love you if you would just, and maybe you should go on this mission trip. And perhaps, and he tells you to do stuff like that. So how could that be Satan, right? It's because you think you're now getting merit before God, that you're cleansing yourself, that you're somehow earning his love, and it's all lies. And it's not true, and it's destructive. It's unless he washes you and he can wash you. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, he can wash you today. And if you know Jesus as your Savior and now you've decided that now it's on you, you can change that and go back to the cross today and live by faith today. And part of that living by faith when you experience that love is that we love one another. See, real relationships, they require unlimited love. And that's nice to know. It does you absolutely no good just to know that information. It only does you any good if you'll actually live it out. Because real relationships require love in action. And that's our second point. Real relationships require love in action. And so Jesus does this for these men, which is nice. It was great service. It showed incredible humility. But he wants to make sure they really understand what happened here. And look at the part of the passage we haven't read yet. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set an example, a pattern, that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, this information, you'll be blessed if you highlight them in your iPad. (laughs) You'll be blessed. If you put this in action, the blessing only comes through obedience. The blessing happens when you actually apply the stuff that I've just told you about, when you actually do this. It's like James says in James chapter 1. He talks about don't be just hearers of the word, be doers of the word. You've got to put this into action. You've got to do something with it. Don't be like the guy who looks at his face in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like and a big green piece of broccoli in his teeth. You know, you don't do that. Don't do that spiritually and look into my word and see what I've shown you and you've seen me accurately. Then you go and you close it up and you go and you have lunch and you forget that it happened. You watch the game and you kind of move on. You're blessed. You're happy. Makarios, the Greek word there. If you do these things, that's how you'll experience this love. That's how you'll experience this satisfaction. That's how you experience the life that I've intended for you to live, the life that I have for you, which is an obedient life, is if I actually do the stuff that I tell you about. So he says to them, do you understand this? Do you get it? Can you imagine here for a moment being one of those disciples And then Jesus, the King of glory, comes and washes your feet. You recognize who he is. You've got an understanding to some degree of who Jesus is and who you are. You might be confused about that and how that status works with each other, but you understand who Jesus is. And he washes your feet. And and I don't know exactly what all this looked like, but he goes back to the table and he sits down. (laughs) What do you do at that moment if you're one of the disciples? Hey, pass the ketchup. You know, what what are you going to do there? It's silly to make any response at this moment. This is perhaps one of the most brilliant moments of the disciples in all of the Gospels. Because they don't say anything. It's a great decision right now. Because Jesus then says to them, do you understand? I I do. (laughs) Here's extra credit, right? No, you don't talk right now. And Jesus wants to make sure they comprehend. And so he starts to point out to them, not just the facts of what happened, but get, get the understanding of this. 
you call me teacher and Lord. And I love that Jesus doesn't do what many of us would do if we just wash someone's feet with the false humility. You guys call me that, but I'm just glad to be here. It's so great to have a meal with you. I'm just blessed that I could serve. And that's kind of what we would do, right? Because that's what we think humility is. But that's not what Jesus does. You know what a teacher is? A teacher is a, a level of honor in that culture. We don't have honor in our culture like this. It was a, it was a position of authority. He says, you call me teacher, and you call me Lord, and that means I owned you. That means I am your master. And Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, and you should, and you don't change that. And then I, your Lord and teacher, have done this for you? What did he do for them? He washed their feet. And he says, I want you to do this for each other. You go through the, the Gospels and, and you go through the book of Acts and you go through the epistles. You never see the disciples doing this for each other. Do they disobey this? What do they mean here when he says, I want you to do this for each other? Does it mean that once a year as a church, you're going to come in, we're going to put a little basin at the, every theater seat and we're going to wash each other's stanky, nasty feet? No. That's not what this means. Does it mean you should sign up for a service project once a year? That'd be great, right? That's not what this passage means. Maybe it means that you should go do something no one else knows about, like clean some restroom somewhere in a gas station or something, and then it's just like you and God know and it keeps your heart right. No, that's not what this means. That's all good stuff. Not what Jesus is talking about when he says you do this. You know what Jesus is talking about? That's what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2. This passage is an exact illustration of what what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, that our attitude as believers, your attitude, should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, considered as equality with God, not something to hold on to, not something to grasp. We can't even fathom what it would be to be like equal with God. He just, he just puts that aside. He is God. And he puts that aside. And he takes on the nature, the very form of a slave. The word in that text is slave. And becomes obedient to death. The worst, lowest, criminal, worst kind of criminal death you could ever experience. A crucifixion on a cross. Even death on a cross. That'd be horrific to a first century reader. Death on a cross. God, considered equality with God, not to be grasped, became our servant and humbled himself because the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. And that our attitude should be the same as that. The same as Jesus. You can have an accurate perspective of who you are and your position in Christ and that's the very thing that gives you freedom to then serve this way. Because you've experienced that kind of love. Now you go and you love with an unlimited kind of love. That means regardless of what they've done, what they've said, who they are, how many times you've been rejected, what's going on here, you forgive just as Jesus has forgiven you. You love just as Jesus has loved you. You can do that because Jesus does it through you. Now you're limited by all your resources. You're limited by your physicality. You're limited by your money. You're limited by your time. You're limited by all those things. It's all reality and it's scary because the things that really hold us back is not our time. It's not our money. It's not any of that stuff. It's our fear. If we are candid, we are afraid. We are afraid to get hurt. You will get hurt. And how much more will you know Jesus Christ? Because he knows what that's like. The fellowship of his sufferings. See, it's all about him, ultimately. It's not about, hey, you need to have these kind of relationships because everybody should have some good friends and what social scientists will tell us. No, no, no. Jesus wants you to know him better. He wants you to be closer with him. And it's impossible to do that apart from having these kinds of relationships. The kinds of relationships where you wash one another's feet. Where you confess sin with one another. Where you listen to the real stuff where you actually care and have compassion on that person the same way that Jesus cares and has compassion upon you, where you'll carry those burdens, where you'll spend time and invest in that life. And you know what? The only way this happens is if you do it. You're blessed if you do these things. 
And so the question becomes, how? How do we do that? And it's so important to us as a church. We don't just want to say to you, now go and have these kinds of relationships. We want to provide an opportunity for you to have these kinds of relationships. And we're providing what we call e-groups through our church now. This is an embrace value. These are embrace groups we're talking about now. It's taking the place of a community group that we've talked about in the past. It's always been important to us as a church that we live out the one another's of Scripture. And we are fully aware that everything in this world fights against this. That people work long hours, longer hours now than they did 10 years ago. And the people, for every 10 minutes you spend in a commute, you know you're 10% less likely to be connected in real meaningful relationships. We understand that people commute and they drive all over the place and they're traveling all over the world. We understand all that stuff. And we understand that people are afraid of being hurt. We understand all the factors that play into this. We understand how much time that we spend surfing the web reduces the amount of time that we have for real relationships with people and people spend more time doing that now than they have ever done before. We understand that. But we also look at the scriptures and realize that while these things are not bad in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with driving in the car or surfing the net or doing any of that stuff. Do we believe that we're in a battle, and it's a battle for our hearts, it's a battle for our souls, and part of it would be, wouldn't it be wonderful for the enemy if he could get the church to be in isolation from one another? Feed those lies in there. All that stuff that happens when you're in isolation. You have lots of acquaintances. I've got more than 100 friends on Facebook. I've got people on Facebook that if they walk up to me today, I wouldn't even know who they were that are my friends. Those aren't friends. Not the real kind of relationships we're talking about here. See, real relationships are those people that you can tell all your stuff to, all your secrets to, that you can confide in according to secular social scientists, that Jesus says that you can live in life with, that you can wash their feet, that they can wash your feet, that you love one another. And so we want to provide that through what we call our e-groups. And we are going to have tonight, if you don't have those kind of relationships, tonight at the church office from 7 to 9 o'clock, we're going to have what we call group link. It's specifically for embrace groups, what we call community groups, that are focused on the one another's of Scripture. And there'll be people that'll get in a group, eight to 14 people will get in a room together at their house and they'll talk about life and they'll talk about the message and they'll pray together and oftentimes they'll break bread together, they'll eat together. So it's a great way to get a free meal. You should go sign up, I'm just kidding. But it's a great way to, to have an opportunity for real relationships. Now we can't guarantee you'll have this, but we can provide an opportunity for it to happen. And what we ask is that people that go to this group link tonight, that they'll spend eight weeks in group. You just try it out with each other. It's not clicking, there's nobody there that you connect with, that's fine, we'll, we'll find you another place. But you need this. And some of you may hear that and go, no, I got friends. I'm good. I'm not one of those people. I got two people and they're my accountability partners or whatever I call them and I'm good. Do you know what? Maybe the reason why God has you here today and listening to this message is so that you can go to one of these groups and provide it for someone else. Maybe it's not because you need friends, but maybe someone else needs you to be a friend. And so will you pray about your role in our embrace groups as a church? We want everybody in some group, encounter groups, embrace groups, engage groups, because it's in those places where life happens together. And so the question for you is, not does real, do real relationships require unlimited love, and should I do this, but will you, and do you have it? Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that, God, you wouldn't allow any of us to live in a world of isolation, that you'd give everyone here at least one person, one person outside of their immediate family that they can confide in, one person that will carry their burdens, one person that will love them the way that you've loved us. And I pray, God, that you'd make us intentional about at least one person that we'll do that with, that we'll pursue, regardless of how many times we're rejected, regardless of how many times they don't want it. But, God, we know that they need it, and so we want to love them. Will you help us to do it your way with grace, with tactfulness, and with love, to be patient, to be kind, to not envy, to not boast, to keep no records of wrongs, but to love the way that you've loved? Please, God. 
And Father, I pray for any here that don't know your son Jesus as Savior, that they wouldn't just go out and get in a group, and they wouldn't get assimilated to the church, and they wouldn't do all this God stuff and miss that first step of needing to experience your unlimited love. And maybe they need to be forgiven of something they thought they could never be forgiven of. Or maybe they're good, and they, they're moral people, and they grew up in church, and they've got questions, and today, will you wash their feet? Will you cleanse them of that stuff? And will you draw them into a relationship with you? And if you need a relationship with Jesus today, just confess your sin to him. Ask him to be your Savior. And you can begin that relationship with him this morning. If you do that, will you please mark it on your connection card? Father, I pray for any that would trust Jesus today, that you'd begin a new journey for them and turn their world upside down. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.